0: How many of you guys know how to swim? Okay, most people. I I would consider myself um, a decent swimmer. You know, I I can swim. I mean, I'm i not going to win an Olympic medal, and probably not going to swim the English Channel. And no one's going to look in the water and mistake me for Mark Spitz or Michael Phelps. I mean, body type I know, but not how I swim. I get that. Um, Wow, that's a lot more laughter than I think you should have had. That, that just, that's just more than it should have had to come out. But, you know, I'm a decent swimmer. But the one thing I don't like to do, the one place I don't like to swim is in a lake. I mean, I can do it, but I don't like it. And, and the reason I don't like it is because you can't see the bottom. You know, you put me in a... I can go, I'll get in a pool, however deep you want it to be. If I can see the bottom, there is something about that that makes me feel better about swimming there. But when you can't see the bottom, it just feels mysterious. And the other thing is, you never know what kinds of things are going to be on my legs. You know, stuff little critters tell me. Because you know they're in there, right? I mean, you're in a lake. There are critters in the lake, and you don't know where they're, where they're, what they're going to do. And that bugs me too. I don't, I don't like being in a lake. And, and in expanses of water like that, it brings a little bit of uncertainty. Uh, because I can't control the environment near as much as I'd like to. And and I think that is probably why, in the ancient world, water was often a metaphor for chaos and even evil. Because you get out in the middle of a lake, you get out in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea, you get out into an ocean, and you cannot control anything that happens. You have no idea how deep the water is, you just know it's deep. You have no idea what's in the water and what may come up out of the water. And you have no idea what kinds of storms may arise. And they often will come unexpectedly. And there is this sense of of the chaotic nature of of the storm and of the water, that uncontrollable nature of the water, that is often a metaphor for the work of evil in the world. And there's fear about that, as you can well imagine. And so when you but what's interesting to me is that God often takes does things to to reveal that despite the uncontrollable nature of water and despite the metaphor that water has as chaos and evil that God is greater. It's not a coincidence that when the Israelites come out of Egypt one of the great miracles that God performs is to part the Red Sea. And to say to the water, you do what I tell you to do. And when the Israelites go into the land of Canaan, into the promised land, God parts the Jordan River and says to the water, you will do what I tell you to do. And in the New Testament, Jesus, one of the great miracles he performs, is to walk on water as if it's dry land. As powerful as water may be, It is no match for God. So here you have this story of the disciples out in a boat on the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is about eight miles wide. It's a big expanse of water. And they're out on the sea and a storm arises out of nowhere and they are panicked. Now, these are seasoned fishermen. They live most of their life on the water. And they are so panicked, and Rembrandt does a great job of sort of depicting that scene of you know guys hanging over the edge, losing their lunch and things. And, and these are guys who are used to be on the water. This must have been a phenomenal storm, maybe one of the worst storms that any of them had ever been a part of. And they are red, they're saying, "We're going to drown. We're not going to make it." And Jesus, all the while, is sleeping. And they come and they wake him up and they say, Jesus, we're all going to drown. And we often interpret this story as, and Jesus, we say that Jesus then gets up and he speaks a word and the, the seas become calm. And we often interpret this story as we, we pray to God in the midst of our storms, he will calm them. But I don't really think that's what the story is about. Now, does God calm our storms? Sometimes he does. Can he? Yes. But I think this is a story about, in many ways, it's about the kingdom. Because if the water represents evil, and this is, in a sense, the work of evil against Jesus and his disciples, then the story is about Satan's continual attempts to drown the kingdom. He starts way back before Jesus, when Jesus is born. The evil one is doing everything in his power to eliminate Jesus' life. Herod, there are people who threaten his life. There are people who who do everything possible. The evil one is continually trying to tempt Jesus to do everything he can to destroy the plan and the purpose of God to redeem his creation. And now we have one more example of that where the evil one is saying, if I can drown this boat then all the plans of God are going down with it. And Jesus says that's not going to happen. Jesus can sleep in the boat because he knows the kingdom is safe. The kingdom is secure. What we see in image here is what Jesus says a few chapters later to the disciples. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Period. No matter what Satan throws against the church, no matter what Satan throws against God's people, God's kingdom will prevail. And we live in that. I think sometimes we forget that. When when the culture and the world and sometimes Government and people are are pushing and 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 create a storm against the church. It's easy for us to panic and to feel fear that maybe the kingdom is going to go under. And it's in those moments that God is calling us to see the kingdom as He made it, and that it's safe, it's secure. We can count on it. and We live in that truth. And no matter what comes against the kingdom, no matter what comes against the church, no matter what comes against God's people, corporately or individually, God is greater and the kingdom will not fail, period. But this story is also about our response to that truth. I have been intrigued all of my life about this story. You know, it's one of those stories you first, you first hear probably in Sunday school, if you went to Sunday school. And you hear this story over and over and over again. And, and I, I, I ponder this story. For, for one thing, how can Jesus sleep to this storm? I mean, he must have really been out. I mean, you know, you, this, this storm is raging so much the disciples can't, can't take it. And here's Jesus down in the, in the ship sleeping. Wow. And when he gets up, when the disciples wake him up, he looks at them and says, why are you afraid? What do you mean, why are we afraid? Have you looked out what's going on here? Can you feel the boat doing this? Why are we afraid? What do you mean? I don't get it. And then he says, you have little faith. I think he's being kind of hard on them, to be honest with you. I'd be panicked. I'd be waking him up, too. And yet, he interprets that as little faith. And it strikes me that maybe what's going on here in terms of how we respond to the storms that come against the church and against God's people, I don't think Jesus' intent was to calm the storm. I think his intent was to get them through the storm. And to get them to the shore in spite of the storm otherwise why would he sleep through it otherwise why would he say waking him up is little faith don't you believe that the kingdom is big enough that god is great enough that to let you to get you through the storms that come and to get you to the other side It's not that he can't calm the storms. We see that. He does it. That just wasn't his original intent. And I think that's because what he wanted this to be for his disciples was an opportunity to learn to trust him a little bit more. He's always calling us to that. The evil one may be the one who generates the storms that we face. But God is telling us, will you trust me even if the storm continues? Even if it feels like everything is going under, will you still trust me? And and the reason God wants us to do that is because only when we learn to trust him will we experience more of him. And only when we experience more of him do we come to this abundant life that he has created us to experience in him. His purpose for us and everything about his purpose for our lives is to lead us to the deeper things of his of his spirit and the deeper things of life with him so that we can experience the fullness of who he is and experience shalom and flourishing and life and peace and joy and all of these things. And so often we are willing to settle for less. After he calms the storm, the disciples are amazed. And that's great. Great. But I don't think the story, the intent of this of this event is to amaze the disciples. The intent of this event is to help them to grow in their trust and faith. And so often you and I are willing to settle for being amazed. And being amazed is awesome. You know, to see God do great things, miraculous things. We come to worship and we sing and, and, and we feel the energy of that. And we, we are in amazement of God. And that's a great thing. But it only gets us so far. We're looking to be amazed. God is looking for us to learn how to trust, to not settle for less. There are lots of people who climb some of the mountains of the, uh, the Swiss Alps. And there's one place, one mountain that tourists love to climb. And it's a hard climb. You know, it's, 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 a, tough, it's a tough task, but you can do it in a day. And people start early in the morning. And when you get to, to about noon, you come to a house on the middle of the inside of the mountain where you have a resting spot. In fact, this place is called a halfway house. And, and you get there and there's food and uh, there's a warm fire. And, or, you know, you get a chance to just sort of rest for a little bit. And, and w- is an interesting thing happens. though. after being there for about an hour and then they say the guide says, OK, let's get going. We're ready to get to the rest of the way to the top there's a, maybe half of the people who say, you know what, I can, we're good here. Let's just stay here. The fire's warm, food's good, you know, we'll, just, we'll hang out here and you guys go ahead and finish. And, it's, you know, and the atmosphere there is, is, is really upbeat, it's fun, they're singing at the piano, and they're, you know, they're eating, they're drinking, they're, they're having a great time together. And about 3.30, the whole atmosphere changes because they look out the big picture window of the, uh, the mountain and they see their other, the other climbers getting close to the top. And the atmosphere of joy and celebration there changes completely and everybody goes silent because all of a sudden everyone realizes what they're missing. Their friends are experiencing the joy of making that climb, getting to the top. And they chose to miss it. And there's something in that that we so often are willing to settle. Jesus just calmed the storm. I'm not really that interested in learning more about trusting. I just want life to be easy. And God keeps nudging us and calling us To go deeper. To experience more. Maybe as you think about the storms that you're going through. Or that the church is going through. I mean, if you're like me, I'm asking God to calm it. And there's nothing wrong with asking God to calm the storm. I was looking this week. The word rescue is used about a hundred times in the Psalms. And most of those occurrences are God rescue me. God save me. God help me. And there is absolutely nothing wrong with praying that. We see people doing that all the time. History is flooded with people who cry out to God for his help to rescue, to end the struggle, to to calm the storm. There is absolutely nothing wrong with that prayer. What God is calling us to is whether, however he answers that prayer, to believe. To be willing to say, please calm the storm. But if you don't. I still trust you. And we're going to move on to deeper things. Because God is wanting to move us to learn how to trust. So that we experience those deeper, more abundant things of life with him. I mean, it's what we often experience learning patience. I've come to the conclusion that most all of us struggle with patience. Patience. There are lots of other things that maybe we don't struggle with, but most people struggle with patience. I know I do. And I made the mistake not too long ago of praying for God to give me more patience. That's a mistake, I'm going to tell you right now. Because you know what happens? You get opportunities to learn patience. And it wasn't two hours later, I'm outside with the dog on one of those really cold days. Actually, it was at night. And it was freezing, you know, the, it's, the, it's snowing, and wind is blowing. And I'm starting out, I'm thinking, okay, I want patience. And, and I'm thinking, okay, okay, come on, Wrigley, let's go. And I take him out, and I'm, I'm coaxing him. I'm, I'm, I'm real calm about it. Okay, Wrigley, this is a good spot. Why don't you go here? This would be great, you know. And he doesn't. And, and I'm, 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 I'm working hard at trying to stay positive. But after about 7, eight, ten minutes, I'm starting to lose it. And I, my, I'm saying the same words, but I'm saying them in a very different tone. Come on, let's go. This is a perfect spot. What is wrong with you? You know, come on, come on. Stop paying attention to the neighbors. Just go, just go. And, you know, and, and my whole mindset changes. And after he's done, I go in the house. I'm just flooded with this sense of defeat, of failure. Because I had an opportunity to grow a little bit of patience, and I blew it. The great thing is, God keeps giving me more and more opportunities. And I suspect He does you as well. And it's that same principle that God is He's not just He's not just letting things happen to us because they're arbitrarily happening, but He's He's helping us to learn who He is, the deeper things of the Spirit to know the life of victory and joy and grace and peace and shalom and flourishing as we trust him more and more and more. And it's hard. It's hard for the disciples. It's hard for every follower of Jesus to trust him in the midst of the storm. We don't do that lightly because it's hard. It's a challenge. But it's what it means to be a a disciple. I mentioned to you a few weeks ago that often the best way to understand the story we're looking at is to see it in the context of the story that goes before it. And here we have one of those, certainly one of those cases. Right before this, they're about to get into the boat. Jesus, a man, a teacher comes up to Jesus. And he says, teacher, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus replied, foxes have dens to live in and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place even to lay his head. And another of the disciples said, Lord, first let me return home and bury my father. And Jesus told him, follow me now. Let the dead bury their own dead. There's a lot going on in just those two brief encounters. And, but at the heart of it is, where is your security? Is your security in God and his kingdom? Or is your security in the things of this life that we often value more than we value the him and the kingdom? Now, Jesus is not saying we shouldn't have places to live. Jesus is not saying we shouldn't have homes. And, and he's just simply saying, will you trust me even if you don't have those things? He's saying it's hard. Jesus is not anti-family. He's not saying we shouldn't take care of our family, our parents, others. We know from other places in Scripture, he's very concerned about that. But what you really, Most scholars believe that what's happening here is this sort of hypothetical situations. It's not that the man says, my father just died, so I need to go take care of him. But it's, what if my father dies? What if some crisis arises? I won't be able to follow you then. And Jesus says, you follow me no matter what. Because... That's the challenge, the call of the gospel. It's sort of like this friend of mine who had a, his own incident when he was a child of cutting his own hair, which did not make his parents happy. And so he has this thing about hit this with his with his own children. And so he has this, sits down with them and says, look, you cannot cut your own hair and you can't cut your brother's or sister's hair. And so as the conversation goes along, they say, well, what if the scissors are laying on the table? No, you cannot cut their hair. What if they ask me to cut their hair? No, you cannot cut their hair. What if you guys aren't around and the scissors are lying there and they ask me? No, you cannot cut their hair. What if you guys aren't paying attention and we ask you if we can cut their hair and you say, I don't know, we'll do whatever. Can we get? No, you cannot cut their hair anytime, anyway. There are no loopholes to this rule. And the truth is, we are often looking for loopholes. Jesus, I'll follow you if you calm the storm. Jesus, I'll follow you if it's not too hard. And the reality is it's hard. It's very, very hard. It's a challenge to us. But it's getting us to a place where we relinquish ourselves to the one who loves us more than anyone else. To believe that God is bigger and greater, that his kingdom will not fail. That our security is in the one who is greater than Satan and evil and all the attacks that it may bring against us. And just in case the disciples are wondering about that, and just in case we're wondering about that, as soon as they land on shore, they encounter two demon-possessed men. And all it takes is a word from Jesus. And the demons flee. And Jesus says to the disciples, and he's saying to us, the kingdom is safe. You can trust me. When the storms are raging, you can trust me. When the seas are calm, you can trust me. When you don't understand what's happening, you can trust me. When fear and panic are creeping into on you, you can trust me. When it feels like the church might be going under, you can trust me. You can trust me. My kingdom will not fail. Period. And the limited authority That the evil one has in this world is not a threat to the authority of God. He may wreak some havoc. He may create some chaos. He may bring some storms. But whatever authority he has in this world, it is not a threat to the authority of God. And that's the heart of our faith. We can't control the storms. I wish I could. I wish I could control the storms in my life, in your life. I've often said to people who are going through crisis, I wish I had a magic word I could say and make all this go go away, but we can't. We have no control over the storms. But we can trust the one who has control over everything. And the disciples cry out in the midst of this, we're going to drown. And they believe that they are. And it's as if Jesus is saying to them, that's your perspective, but that's not my perspective. And the reality is, even if the ship goes down. They can still trust him that there is a way of rescue, that there is a way through. Because. In a little while, they're going to look up at a cross and they're going to think the storm has taken Jesus under and it's over. And the kingdom has lost. But they're wrong. And that's our faith. I don't know exactly what struggle you may be in, what storm may be lashing at you, maybe lashing at the church as a whole. But my word to you and to me is that we can trust God because He is greater. And the world needs to see disciples of Jesus who live not in fear, but in faith. Disciples of Jesus who live not in panic, but in the power of the risen Christ. that's what it means to follow Jesus in this moment of brief silence if there's a storm you're going through it's a great time just to affirm who God is to you And your desire to trust him. Father, thank You that You are faithful, trustworthy, You're good. Give us grace to trust You. And we ask this through Jesus Christ. Amen.